This episode is brought to you by Holman Bibles, publisher of great big honkin' Bibles since some year a long time ago. This is a big old Bible. For those of you who can't see, this Bible is literally is as big as my house. Um, goodness. Yeah, wow, I, Kevin. I found it. Yeah, I take great pride in a great big Bible here. Actually, we don't have sponsors. I'm Kevin Boyd. I'm Dustin Chappell. I'm Justin Foster. And this is But Wait, There's More, a conversation show about things we're thinking about, things we care about, and things that are important to life and culture for the people of Legacy Church in Plano, Texas. Today, we're introducing a theme we'll hit once each season. We're calling it Theology 101. Mm. Yeah, it's exciting. Our goal each time is to give an introductory level look at one doctrinal issue that we think is central to the life of our church. And to really not just cover all things, we can't do that in a short podcast, but we want to introduce a topic and point listeners ahead to the kinds of questions that they should be asking. Today, we'll be discussing the question, how do we trust the Bible is true? With the key idea being, is it true? Is it trustworthy? Uh, A lot of big words involved there, inerrancy, infallibility, inspiration, translation, interpretation, comprehension. I can't even say it. Dustin, Justin, thanks for being here. Do you think we can cover this topic in 30 minutes? Well, I don't know. I went to seminary for a couple of years, and I don't know if I've exhaustively explored it. How about you, Justin? I don't even think I could spell all those words in 30 minutes, so <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, they all have an I-N at the beginning and a Y on the end, but beyond that... I know that, I-N yeah. means not. Oh, okay. I'm already lost on this podcast. Right, got hey, it. Before we really get rolling, though, I want to introduce a couple of uh, resources that have been helpful to me over the years for folks who are following along on our conversation today. One book, a book called Inerrancy by Norman Geisler... It is a treatise. I mean, it's wonderful. It's readable. It's understandable. It's, it's thick, but I, I think we can get through it really well. It's kind of a classic in this conversation. Another book that I'd recommend, and I really recommend every book in this series, it's the Counterpoints series. Uh, each of the books in the Counterpoints series take a topic, and they have uh, basically a written debate between several people who have slightly varying views on that topic. This one's called Five Views on biblical inerrancy, and each author, there's five authors, write their view, and the others begin to critique their view and show where they step aside from that. So check out these two uh, resources as you continue the study on your own. Do you guys have anything you'd add to that list, recommended resources? Uh, so uh, one, I, I know that uh, with a topic like inerrancy, it's it's really uh, easy for people to, uh, especially if you just go down the, the Google uh, wormhole, find themselves uh, with plenty of arguments against inerrancy. And so one, one resource that's great against that, uh, just in response to uh, G.K. Bill wrote a book called The Erosion of Inerrancy in Evangelicalism, Responding to New Challenges to Biblical Authority. Uh, and, and that's just a—it's um, it's an academic approach, but it's accessible, uh, I, I think, to people as well. So for, for folks that are like, well, I, I don't know about this, or I don't know about this, um, he kind of gives you some counterpoints as well to, to defend um, the doctrine of inerrancy. Awesome. I can't think from you, Justin. In currency, no. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, for those that may feel a little overwhelmed with reading these books, because while the Geisler book is great and it's fantastic, um, the size may may worry some people. There's actually a documentary called The God Who Speaks. Um, You can find it on Amazon Prime and a couple other places. Um, But it takes seminary professors and presidents and for about an hour and a half or so, they discuss what it means for the the Bible to be inerrant, um, and it's a phenomenal documentary. Some of the professors um, that I'm familiar with from my own seminary uh, are on that documentary, as well as other schools. 
Love it. It's a great, great doc. Good recommendation. Okay, so we're going to get into our topic today. The idea is if someone were to ask uh, you know, an everyday church member uh, what they believe about the Bible, what would they say? Would they know what to say? Uh, I think, generally speaking, most Christians believe the Bible's nature is important, but in, despite their belief of its importance, many Christians are under-informed about how these doctrines have been traditionally understood. Mm. Uh, it's possible even that many Christians would struggle to give a clear explanation uh, of what we've traditionally believed about the Bible. So we'll get into a little bit of that today. Um, I will have kind of prepared a few questions, six questions we'll ask, and we'll try to answer them as best as we can with the time that we've got. Uh, that I think will be helpful for people, not in answering all things, but in stirring the pot and helping lead people ahead in in the conversation. Hmm. So question one today, we've got to get some common definition down so we know what we're actually talking about. We'll start with the word inerrancy. What is inerrancy? How would you view that? How would you explain that to someone in our church? Go for it, Dustin. Oh, goodness. Uh, I mean... The, so inerrant. Just let's let's just look at the definition. In I in not. Cool. Okay. We're good there. Errant. Um, I guess with error. So I mean, it very very basically, um, the Bible's without error. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I mean, and and I think I mean you guys can expound upon that, but it, at the at the very basic level, we're kind of saying the Bible's yeah is good. Yeah. That that the original uh, what you would call autographs or the original manuscripts, the original writings are without error, that uh, it self-discloses and does not uh, contain anything that is false. That's right. So inerrancy simply means the Bible is without error. It's a belief in the total truthfulness and the reliability of God's words. So if that's our foundation, that's the the ground we're working from for this conversation. Why bother with inerrancy? Uh, Does it matter? What does it matter for an everyday person if the Bible is inerrant or not? What difference does it make? Goodness. Um, Let me put it this way. Have you had ever had someone talk to you before questioning, hey, how can I trust this, and is it is it that big of a deal? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I think that's one of the most uh, common brought-up uh, objections to Scripture or even Christianity. Yeah. Um, but it is it matters because... Scripture is the the ultimate authority in, in rule and faith. It's it's God's words to His people, so that we know who He is yeah. and how to be saved, and then how to live life with Him. What what to expect? Um, and so it matters because if it is with error, then what? If one thing is found with error, then what's to say something else is not found with error, and then everything crumbles. Right, and and just to I mean use scripture to self disclose. I mean, in Psalm one nineteen one five, it tells us that Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Um, and if and if what's lit up isn't legitimate, I mean, what what purpose is there for us reading that? What good is it? Uh, upon whose authority are are we really giving any sort of credibility uh, yeah. to the text? Now, some liberal theolo- theologians will point out that um, our view of the Bible doesn't really matter in these terms. So long as we gain strength from it and insight from it, they say, isn't that enough? What do you think about that? Isn't it enough that I have some connection to it and I feel some things and I go, oh, that sounds sounds good. I'll do that. I mean, I can watch a movie and say that. I mean, there are movies that make me feel good and make me feel some things, but I'm certainly not using them as the foundation upon which I'm living my life. Yeah, it's... You can have a connection to to anything, but 
scripture itself gives us the purpose for scripture. And so uh, if we just have a connection to or a, a warm, fuzzy feeling, then we're not actually engaging it as it's supposed to be used. Uh, likewise, if I, if I use a blender to try to, to hammer a nail into the wall, I'm not using it for its intended purpose. Yeah. Uh, it works. Um, it's fine, I guess, but that's not what is it's for. And so whenever you use it wrongly or don't look at what its intended purpose is, again, it's just going to crumble and it's going to cause bigger issues than, than help. For sure. When, you know, when I, I think about um, looking at the Bible or viewing the Bible as just a general use instrument, as, as something that is useful or insightful, but not special in some way, not unique uh, among all other words out there in, in some way. The problem is defining which parts of it then hold water, which parts of it are true and which parts of it are not true. Because at that point, I'm the one who's the arbitrator. I'm the one who's looking at it, deciding, well, this is good or this is not. And I know how many mistakes I make in less consequential yeah. matters when it comes now to life and faith and salvation and, and, and things that live on in legacy. If, if I'm the arbitrator over which parts are right or not, I'm going to make uh, a, a ton of errors on my own. The Bible in of itself self-discloses that it is without error. Yeah. It, it doesn't make any restrictions on the kinds of subjects which it speaks truthfully. Psalm uh, 12.6 says, The words of the Lord are pure. They're pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified not once, not twice, seven times. Yeah. And for me, what this means is the Bible is saying that it is trustworthy through and through and through and through times seven. It's, I mean, it has absolutely been perfectly purified to be exactly what the Lord intends for it to be. And there's not error then left for yeah. us to try to determine what's right or not. Yeah. Well, likewise, Kevin, Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And again, it's this self-disclosing, this, this idea that um, it is for growth. It is important that um, for life. It's not just a nice connection to it. Uh, let's keep talking about this. Um, we've both said the Bible self-discloses. Let's talk about the foundation of the belief of biblical inerrancy. Yeah. What's it rooted in? What's it grounded in? Yeah. Well, I, I think we can point to uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 says, you know, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the people of God may be complete equipped for every good work. So I think I think it's important if we claim in any capacity to be people of God, uh, people uh, that want to show our devotion and um, model our lives on uh, the teachings and the Word of Jesus Christ, we have to recognize that Scripture itself is that authority. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and beyond that, um, the Apostle Peter talks about this, that, that no one writes doctrine or Scripture on their own volition, but they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. Right. Um, and then beyond that, uh, again, something that I, I feel like I've gone back to over and over and over over the last few years, uh, the Psalms. The Psalms over and over again talk about the Word of the Lord or the law of God. Um, and in, in, Saul, in the Psalms, we see this idea that uh, Scripture is true, it's without error. Like Because God himself cannot and will not lie, 
his word that he has given to humanity or to the people of God, Dustin, as you said, um, it will not lie either. Because so in other it words, is from you're saying him. if God is without error, then his word is without error. Correct. Yes. Yeah, that's good. You know, I, I would, you know, compliment a couple of things. One, Dustin, you mentioned that the apostle Paul, um, really the, the forerunner of the of the Gentiles' introduction to Christianity, right. the you know the first of the the apostles to the Gentiles, great father of the early church, he believed the scriptures were inerrant. He said right. it to, to Timothy in Second Timothy three. Justin, you mentioned that Peter also talk mm-hmm. about Peter and Paul, another great father of the church, key absolute key apostle, breaking ground for the gospel at the very beginning of the church. He, in First Peter 2, said the, that it's not man that has disclosed these words, it's the Spirit himself who has the Spirit who's God. So the apostles believed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also know that Jesus believed that the Scriptures were inerrant. Jesus, quoting him, he said in John 10, the Scripture cannot be broken. Right? It, it is yeah. perfect. It, it can't be broken down by man, by argumentation. It, it cannot have a weakness or a chink to it. Yeah. it it's, it's solid. He also said in Matthew 5, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And then in his high priestly prayer in John 17, uh, Jesus prayed to his Father, your word is truth. And so it seems Jesus believed it. It was his view. Uh, The apostles believed it. It was their view. Most of church history agreed um, with inerrancy until 150, 200 years ago, the church in general really didn't debate that at all. Right. And the uh, church tends to disagree on a lot, don't yeah. they? I mean, and so for, for the church to find something uh, upon which they, they find commonality um, in, in the you know, breadth of the historical record, I mean, goodness, I mean, should we not give some credence then to, to that sort of agreement when, when they're so quick to disagree and split over so many other things? So five points to that answer. That's a lot yeah. we've given yeah. here, but yeah. we're just talking about the foundation of the belief right. of inerrancy. We said the Bible self discloses itself to be inerrant. It's the right. Word of God. Two, it's the Word of God. If God's without error, His Word's without error. Jesus believed it. The apostles believed it. Church history has believed right. it. That's the foundation for why the three of us believe it as well. Right. Um, let me move to another question. This is a question that um, I've heard numerous times over the years. I'd say it's probably likely you've heard it too from people at one time or another. Someone maybe earlier in their faith or someone who's not a Christian, but you're deep in in conversation, they turn to you and they ask, well, how can I trust that the version of the Bible, the translation that I have my hands on, you know, the one that I was given when I graduated high school or or Mm -hmm. the one I looked up on my phone, how can I trust that this book I'm holding today is without error? Well, and I think I think it kind of begs the question uh, that we've all you know experienced. I, I know Justin, you and I've talked about this before, and Kevin as well. Like, um, hey, well, what version is the best version? It's not just hey, is this version is, yeah. but like, I mean, there there. Are, I mean, you go to the Christian bookstore. How many how many different copies are you going to see? Um, but what version is best? And so, Justin, like, I, I'm curious um, from your perspective, like having sat in seminary. You know, people debate this all the time. Well, this version's better because right. of this and this and this and this. Um, bring us into that conversation, kind of as you've experienced it before. Yeah, um, to be honest, as a as a young Christian, I was very opinionated about what the right version was. The ESV is the elect standard version because we're <laughs> God's elect, um, and so I was just very opinionated, very arrogant about that. 
And in seminary, I had a professor, uh, Glenn Kreider, Dr. Glenn Kreider, uh, led class every morning with devotionals. And one morning we, we get to class and he opens it up and he uh, stops after telling us what passage we're going to be in. And he goes, I want to I say something. Um, never, ever discourage a brother or sister in Christ for the version or the translation of the Bible that they're reading. You should be rejoicing in the Lord that they're reading their Bible and seeking to apply it. Because you, sir, or madam, who are judging them, apparently are not. And I'm like, oh, you know, <laughs> because it, it cut me. The, the Spirit used that moment uh, to help me understand that translations are important, um, but God is using those. It, his word will not return void. It's right. his word. And so through translations, there's processes and um, different backgrounds and things like that, that that is worthy of talking about. But ultimately... Um, there are many good and healthy translations of, of the Bible. And as long as it's a good and healthy translation, and do you know where the background is of the translating committee, you should engage that. So, And, and to that, I would say, like, if you, if you have found a translation of the Bible, which is only published in an ebook format online, maybe it's, it, 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 it could be somewhat suspect. But if you go to a Christian bookstore... Um, I, I, th- I think it's important for people to know that um, there are teams of translators um, that are working on these translations, and they're working together um, in order to spend time on—you may have a scholar who's worked on Second Timothy for two years, and, and their, their intent is to work with others who are of different faith— you know, different, you know, kind of denominational backgrounds, um, so that we are getting at the heart of this text. I'm not doing this in isolation. You know, as Scripture tells us, we're supposed to be doing this in community. And so they're translating this in community. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's um, one of the most common arguments that I've heard, uh, not so much about modern translations, but about medieval translations. What prevents a monk from from changing it? Well, here's the thing is, it's done in community with education, and this is their their life. This is who they care about. Uh, so they're not going to to change the word. They're not going to to be malicious in intent. Um, and so it's while I understand the question, we should be able to ask questions. Um, sometimes the questions that we ask already have clear and defined answers. Yeah, and you make a good point that um, any modern translation today that's faithful, mm-hmm. um, that we would really say this is uh, a good work that has been done, uh, has been done not just in community, but in diverse community. You make that point. And uh, if sometimes you can just flip to the opening of your Bible and you can actually see uh, some of the stats. It's on like who movie credits. Together, but it's like movie credits. <laughs> or you can go and really do a quick search online and say, this is the Bible I have. Talk to me about the committee that put it together. And there has been intentionality that not one uh, um, interpretation has been dominating the translation because their work isn't to interpret and preach, but their job is to translate right. technically. Right. So that what we have is not one person's view of how the scripture should be understood, but what we have is uh, words that have been transferred and passed along right. throughout centuries. And l- let me give you just a little of the um, the deeper background on that, obviously scholars, academics will have a greater hold on this and be able to 
to dig deep. And, and there are a lot of, of great works that can be read about the history of how we ended up with the Bible in our hands today. But for centuries, really, biblical scholars relied upon a 9th century uh, A.D. text called the Masoretic Text in order to translate the original Hebrew manuscripts into other languages uh, around the world. In 1946, a lot of people have heard uh, maybe some, they've heard these words thrown out, maybe not totally understood what was going on, but a Bedouin shepherd discovered a handful of ancient scrolls in, in some caves. And they kind of opened uh, archaeolog archaeological digs at this point to go, wait, can we find more ancient scrolls like this? And within two years, they found what we know of as the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is I mean, absolutely regarded as the greatest manuscript discovery in the, the modern era. Uh, archaeologists found thousands uh, upon thousands of biblical fragments dating back as early as the 2nd century B.C., including an entire copy of the book of Isaiah, which is just <laughs> astounding, amazing, and pieces of every Old Testament book except for Esther there. Many of the scrolls demonstrating... Uh, as they compared them to the Masoretic text, which had been the common text for which translation had been done, uh, found the similarity was just uncanny. It's like this is this is faithful. This Masoretic text we've been looking at looks just like all of the the earliest documents. In fact, the Book of Isaiah, uh, for example, which you know the entire thing was found, they found <laughs> about ninety five percent of it was exactly as found yeah. in the Masoretic yeah. text. And the 5% that wasn't were simple differences that might be like misspellings or word orders, uh, but in no way changed any meaning or, or areas of, of consequence. It's just, yeah. oh, this word was in front of this word. We structured this sentence you know, slightly differently here and, and there. And doesn't that speak to what we've already, you know, Justin, you mentioned in Second Peter, that, you know, the, the, the Word of God, you know, that's uttered from his lips is, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is, this is a millennia removed from from the time that these things were written, yeah. and yet we're seeing um, just clear examples of of the of the text matching. Yeah, and you can you can then trust that the Holy Spirit who writ these words uh, continues to protect these words yes. yeah. and continues to work. That's one reason we would say the Bible is living and active because the Holy Spirit is always active in preserving and and illumining these words. The significance of these ancient finds is that the whole Old Testament there, the Hebrew text, was preserved. That's cool. That's encouraging. But when you move to the, the New Testament text, this is amazing. There's more than uh, 5,700 Greek manuscripts containing either parts or all of the New Testament text. And if you consider this and, and how these are all looked upon to come uh, up with the translation that you have, you compare it to other ancient literature like Homer's Iliad, there's only 1,700 manuscripts in existence, or Beowulf. You, you, you're taught it in school. It's you know great literature that is found to be a standard for society. There's only one manuscript of that for which all of the translations have been created, and yet we have you know 5,700 that are being compared against each other to come up with with our, our New Testament in in varying forms. Uh, because of this, because there's so many manuscripts available. Uh, scholars are able to deter determine the wording of the original text in a majority of cases. And uh, I would point listeners to a podcast done on uh, by Pro Crossway Books. They have a, the Crossway podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, and last year they did a podcast with a, a man named Peter Williams. Uh, podcast's uh, title is How Reliable is the New Testament? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it's How Reliable is the New Testament, the Crossway podcast with Peter Williams. And he went in with several examples of different books of the New Testament and said, you know, there's 57 copies of, of this book, and there's 193 copies, uh, you know, of original text on this that were, that were worked from to come up with your translation. And it's just really a, a beautiful story talking about the reliability uh, of, of the scriptures and how it has been, um, you know, compared against, against, against all of these manuscripts to ensure um, as best we can, but certainly uh, because of the providence of the Holy Spirit, that the Bible you pick up at Walmart or that you were given at graduation is faithful. Yeah. Um, we move to, move to the next question. This question is uh, one I've been hearing a lot more uh, over the last decade. In fact, I've heard this from um, multiple friends that I've been friends with for 10 to 15, 10 to 20 years, longtime friendships, people who, and uh, th- those I'm thinking of, grew up in the church. That's not everyone's story, but these did. They grew up in the church, going to some kind of Sunday school experience, vacation Bible school experience. The ones I'm thinking of were deeply involved in their youth group. They were churched kids, and they've come to a point probably in their mid to early 30s where they began having some angst, and as they entered close to their 40s, began rejecting the notion of the reliability and infallibility of the Bible. I, in fact, had a friend recently ask, you know, I just, help me find a, a church that loves Jesus, who teaches the Bible, but doesn't have to say all of it's true. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in one term, it's heartbreaking. In another term, it's mind-breaking. I'm going, I don't, I don't know how, how these things work together. But I think this is a question people have. What if I don't believe it's inerrant? So what? Mm-hmm. How would you respond in that situation? What if I don't believe it's inerrant? So what? First, I I would respond by asking, what evidence do you need? Um, And the reason I'd ask that is because that question gets down to, do they want evidence that proves their point, what they're already feeling, or they want evidence or they're asking to learn? Um, because as we, as we know, as Christians, our, our knowledge and our understanding and our maturity our spiritual maturity is progressive. Um, as much as I would love to have come to Christ in faith and be the most spiritually mature person that's ever walked the earth, that's just not the course that God has given us. Um, and so it's progressive. So just asking, asking them to clarify what they're wanting. And then from there, encouraging them to, to pray, um, just seek wisdom, um, and to, to look at the evidence, because for some, it is the evidence. For others, uh, because I can think of a person in my life that he doesn't want actual answers. He wants to be able to justify this is why I get to live this way. Um, and so that's that's where I would start initially, I believe. I wish you just yeah, say. I think um, um, if, if Scripture's not inerrant, um, what, what, is, what is your authoritative word on God? Yeah. Um, and, and I think um, that it begs the questions like, uh, so from, from whom are you deriving your authority? Like it, it almost creates this scenario in which, well, Jesus is who I say he is. Mm-hmm. God is who he says, uh, who I say he, he is. And it's just like, if, if God is defined by me, 
is he really even God anymore? Right. Like, I mean, in, in, in I'm going to define God different than Justin or, or, or define God different than Kevin. Like, there, there is no commonality um, that we may find in him other than like, oh, he's good. He's God. He's in charge of some stuff. But, you know, maybe this and maybe that. But, you know... We don't we don't have anything uh, upon that's that's really speaking authority to to all of us that keeps us in unity. Yeah, I, I that speaks to to my heart a little bit. I at some point I really believe this, and it's counterintuitive to what most of us really think. I think at some point we all want to submit, mm-hmm. and you know we live in a day and age ago that sounds silly. Everyone wants to go their own way to live their truth, right? Um, but at the end of the day, I really believe everyone wants to submit to someone or something. And if you look at everyone who's living their life in any way they want, you can listen to what they're saying and begin to trace um, their their words and their actions and their decisions back towards a root source. No one is original <laughs> on in, in that regard. And at the end of the day, we all want to come under something that makes us feel secure because it either affirms us uh, in the way we want to go or because it settles us in the things that we are afraid of and where we feel helpless. And so we want to submit. Otherwise, if we don't submit, we are saying, I'm God. Right. Or I'm a God. Or at least we're saying, I'm the last word on what is true and what is right and what's valuable, what's noble. It's frightening. And if we deny inerrancy... I think we essentially make our own human minds the higher standard of truth than God's Word for itself. For me, the Bible is what it says it is, what Jesus believed it is, what the apostles and most of church history said it is, and if I'm wrong, okay, I'm going to entertain that idea, if I'm wrong about that, the alternative is more frightening to me. Mm -hmm. If the Bible isn't what it claims to be, then we are all just hoping that we're smart enough or good enough to define what is righteous and what is goodness, and maybe we'll get lucky and find something that leads to some kind of, of life or salvation. If I'm wrong, it's more terrifying than if I'm right. 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 Yeah? If it's wrong in the details, why not in the doctrines? Yeah. Where's the line? If it's wrong, if it has errors, then how will I know salvation? Yeah. Right? Hmm. So let me ask you this. How should believing the Bible is without error lead a person to relate to the Scriptures? If if I embrace the Bible is trustworthy, mm-hmm. what's my relationship with it then? What are the challenges to that? So I, I, I've got a quote from J.I. Packer uh, that, that I think really speaks to this, to this question. It says, By affirming biblical inerrancy, one, or like we, commits oneself um, in advance to receive as God's instruction and obey as God's command whatever Scripture is already known to teach and may in the future be shown to teach. And so basically, when, when we say the Bible is inerrant, we're saying the Word of God is the Word of God. Like, um, and so I need to use it because I, I care about what God has to say. I care who God says that I am and who God calls me to be. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of the song that we sing on Sunday mornings often, uh, I am who you say I am. Mm. Um, and regarding the previous question and in this one, uh, 
if we define who God is and say that Scripture does not reveal who He is, uh, then we we say He is who, you know, who we right. want Him to be. Um, but the reality is, um, both on on faith and evidence, because uh, uh, we have a faith that seeks understanding, not not a blind ignorant faith, but a faith that seeks understanding. Uh, we are we are called to and have the opportunity and freedom to submit to it. As, as Kevin was, was saying, we, we all want to submit to something, so we have the opportunity to submit to it and be formed by it. Um, but the challenge is um, how much intake of Scripture versus how much intake of culture. Is it that we're being formed uh, inwardly by the outside world, by the things that are fallen and mm-hmm. broken and sinful? Mm-hmm. Or are we being formed by uh, inwardly, by the spirit who indwells us because of our faith. Um, and so mm. that's, that's the challenge is one taking an inventory of, do I know scripture? Am I, well, first really, do I know Christ as, as Lord and savior? And then beyond that, am I intaking scripture so that I can allow God himself to use it and form me? Absolutely. That's great. I, I think that is the, maybe the biggest um, hurdle of the church in, in this day uh, is will we be more Bible-formed or culture-formed? Yeah. And that's not about conservative or liberal. Right. Um, that's not about progressive or fundamental. It's not about politics. Right. Um, it, it is about when we come to anything in life, will my view, the way I think, the way I feel, and the way I, I live, the way I act, the way I speak, will it reflect... Um, having been formed in and, and by the Word of God, or will it reflect, will it show that I've been formed mostly by pundits and politicians and, and, and people on Facebook and or my own desires, which are so often marked by sin? Right. You know, and it's interesting you bring that up, Justin. I'm thinking about, talk about that inward formation. I was talking with my dad yesterday, and he's talking about his house uh, up in Oklahoma, and they had to cut down a tree um, in their backyard, and as they cut down this tree, um, this tree looked strong. It was tall, maybe 30, 40 feet tall. It looked healthy. Um, when they cut it down, they realized there was about a six-inch hole hmm. in the center um, that nobody mm-hmm. could see. Um, yeah. And yet this thing was dying. Um, and I think about Psalm, uh, Psalm 1. Yeah. And it says, you know, um, a man who, who's rooted in the, in the Word of the yeah. Lord, is, is, his, his roots are deep. He's, he's growing. There's, there's substance to it. Um, you're a tree who doesn't have a hole in the middle. Yeah. And if we're allowing ourselves to be formed um, by the things of this world instead of inerrant scripture, um, we may look strong, um, but, but we're going to die. That's a great um, and so it, yeah. it's a great picture. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Mm-hmm. While thousands of years have passed since God breathed out the Old and New Testament scriptures, they remain the living, perfect word of God today. Uh, legacy, we say that we believe the Bible is God's words written for humanity. It's completely true without fault in its matter because men wrote it under the providence, guidance, and superintendence of the Holy Spirit. If we deny inerrancy and we make ourselves or other human beings the arbitrators of what parts are right and aren't right, we cannot trust the Word of God. How would we know what is true? How mm. would we know which doctrines are true? And more importantly, how would we really know how to receive salvation? If we deny the trustworthiness of the Bible, the Word of God, how then are we to learn to trust the God of, of the Word? Yeah. Mm. Any final thoughts you didn't get in today? 
always have thoughts, but <laughs> I, I don't have any good thoughts now. No, I think I think I think this has been this has been good. I, I just um, I encourage uh, those of you who still have questions, um, talk to us, please. Like um, email us podcast at legacychurch.org. Um, this is a, this is a topic that, you know, we've, we've really just scratched the surface of. Yeah. And I, and I think there's a lot to, to learn, um, if, if you want to. I think we're more. still learning, all, yeah. all of us as well. Oh, that's as Thanks, Dustin. Thanks, Justin. This was fun. Uh, hopefully it was helpful for someone out there. It feels like there's a lot more we can get into, a lot of questions that, that come out of our conversation. I'd like to recommend, again, Crossway's podcast. They have an episode titled, How Reliable is the New Testament? with Peter Williams. There's another one I'd recommend, uh, How to Study the Bible with Jen Wilkin. Two great follow-up episodes to this episode today. Uh, we'll see you then next time. This has been But Wait, There's More.